Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of the Investor's Guide to China. I'm Catherine Young, Investment Director at Fidelity International. And I'm Marty Dropkin, Head of Equities Asia Pacific. China's economy and its markets have have you know, certainly faced a number of headwinds in 2022. So previously, we've been discussing slowing growth, geopolitical uncertainty, the impact of the country's COVID policy, and also how the PBOC or the Chinese Central Bank is maneuvering how they ease monetary and fiscally as most other global banks are moving in the opposite direction in terms of hawkish policy. But despite all that, our listeners might be a tad surprised to know that the opening up of China's onshore financial markets has been kicking into high gear throughout this same period. Yeah, you know, Catherine, in this year alone, we've seen a drumbeat of announcements about the world's biggest investment companies, Fidelity International included, moving deeper into China's onshore market, either by setting up wholly owned local subsidiaries or, for instance, many global banks who have been taking control of their existing joint ventures. Yeah, and in a nutshell, if we look at onshore China, it represents a massive pool of tens of trillions of dollars in uncorrelated investment assets and it's growing fast. In this episode, we'll be speaking to Fidelity's investment team in both Shanghai and Beijing about how China's local markets and its onshore investment industry are opening, expanding, and ever-evolving. For our first guest today, I'd like to introduce Jing Ning. Jing has been a key Hong Kong-based equity portfolio manager at Fidelity for years and she's migrating to a leadership role in our Shanghai office. Hi, Jing. Hi, Marty. Jing, you've been investing in China for the last 20 years. You're a so-called first-generation China fund manager. Are you surprised with the developments that you've seen so far? Well, I think there are some misperception in the market on the mutual fund industry in China. Some say it's a young industry, and someone says it's quite small. It's not part of uh, the asset allocation pie shared by a global investor. But I don't think that uh, these perceptions are true. First of all, this is not a new industry. Uh, do you know, Marty, that China's launched is the first close and mutual fund back in 1998? Actually, a friend of mine was a fund manager managing one of those mutual funds. Back in 2001, they launched its first uh, open and mutual fund. And this is also not a market that uh, we can ignore its size, because I think that 200 million retail investors with retail stock account in China, and there are about 700 million mutual fund investors. So by the size of it, it's probably one of the biggest domestic mutual funds in the world. In 2004, actually, I was relocated by my first employer from New York back to Shanghai, and we are one of the first foreign QFII applicants. There are a lot of curiosity on how foreign investors will do things differently in China. And the mutual fund industry at that time is still quite green to a certain degree. A lot of retail investors in that is not institutionalized a lot. But over the past 10 years, the mutual fund industry by size has grown by 800%. And the mutual fund product itself has got a lot of attention and starting to become a mainstream financial product. Many reasons behind that. The stellar performance is one of the reasons. And the retail households started to recognize the mutual fund manager can actually deliver very good performance. 
So I think we are at this point of time in history that you can call the golden entrance point because I think that in the next couple of years, China growth mutual fund industry is going to grow at a very steady rate and a very high rate as well. Jing, so this golden gate you just mentioned, we're still going to see these kind of numbers coming through or, or would you say we're, we're going to see more of an inflection point? I think over the median on long term, we are still going to see some very decent growth number in terms of uh, the number of investor growth and uh, uh, the asset growth of domestic mutual fund industries. But with that being said, there's definitely a lot of volatilities in it. China market mutual fund industry is still, I mean, the stock market itself is still very retail driven, right? The retail investor, even last year, still contributed 70% of the trading volume in China. So it's still very retail oriented and the sentiment swing from one end to the other end within a very short period of time. But the institution investor, either the domestic banks, mutual funds, and people like us, the foreign investor, we're starting to grow at a much faster rate than the retail. So this market is gradually becoming a very more and more institutionalized market as well. I mean, every time I hear numbers like that, as long as I've been involved in China, I'm still astounded. 700 million mutual fund investors. It's really phenomenal. To hear more about how China's perception of mutual funds is changing, Senin Yuan, Fidelity's head of investments for China, caught up with our China managing director, Helen Huang, at our office in Shanghai's International Finance Center. Hi, Helen. Um, I know you've been working in asset management industry in China for over 20 years now, and too big to ignore is definitely a good way of summarizing the market in the last 20 years. Uh, so looking forward, Helen, uh, why is it important for China to develop a mutual fund sector? You know, China's household income is rising quickly. The country's per capita GDP exceeded 10,000 US dollars for third consecutive year in 2021. So it's now on track to reach twenty thousand US dollar by twenty twenty five. So with the rapid accumulation of household assets, Chinese residents have a stronger demand for professional asset management services from mutual funds, and the total AUM by mutual fund have more than doubled in the past five years to twenty seven trillion RMB. So a new private pension scheme is expected to be one of the key drivers for further development in the mutual fund industry. As we see uh, more foreign asset managers try to participate in this market growth, uh, I think what's important is, um, you know, what value do you think, you know, foreign asset managers can bring to the onshore markets? I think a great foreign investor participation may lead to improved market liquidity, healthy competition, and a broader range of investment products. And also foreign asset manager can really leverage their experience in patient product offering, sustainable investing and product innovation to help the markets to grow further. For example, foreign asset manager can help enhance China investors' ESG awareness and promote stewardship practice in China. Thank you so much for your insights, Helen. Thank you, Zainan. 
there are just so many drivers of this huge potential growth, as, as Helen and, and Senan just really highlighted for us. She talked about so many things, the household income rising. I thought one of the real insights was what foreign asset managers can bring to China and that China is interested in leveraging their experience in, in the domestic market. And another thing, Jing, and, and you've been talking about this for years, and I, I think it's such a, a valid and important view in terms of this household wealth that you mentioned that Helen and Senan also spoke about. It's getting bigger, but what are the asset allocation choices for households, especially with what we've seen in the property market? And and you've always spoken about the need to have this total return focus and not just chasing capital returns for you know a week or two weeks from a retail investor's perspective. And so can you just elaborate, please, on, on your thoughts regarding the growing importance of dividends? Most people don't associate China with this, but it is important, isn't it? Yeah, it is very important. I think it's going to be becoming more important in the future. In China, if you look at the investor profile, it looks like a barbell shape. So on one end, you have people, you call this saver, like people like my, my, my parents. They put their money in the bank saving account. They are very, very risk averse. On the other end of the spectrum, you have uh, some invest retail investor who are risk takers. They don't even like mutual funds. They want to they want to trade the stocks. Their monthly turnover could be one hundred percent, right? But what China is lacking in the middle is the what do you call the if you look at the U.S. market, the, the the middle income mainstream investor who come to the capital market looking for steady long term wealth accumulation. In China, in in, in the past, there aren't a lot of people sitting in the middle. But I think that picture is going to change because income will become a very important part of asset allocation for Chinese household in the future. Uh, why income is important? On one hand, I think corporate, Chinese corporate, is delivering the income to investor. And for many companies, their capital allocation mentality has changed. Now, if you earn $100, you probably put like $20 into the traditional capex, and you have $80 left in your pocket, you thinking about maybe I should pay more dividend or, or maybe I should do stock buyback. So the asset allocation picture of on a corporate end has definitely changed. On the other end, right, if you talk about it from the shareholder's perspective, there's definitely more demand for dividend and income. You know, as we know, the largest shareholder in China is Chinese government themselves, right? Uh, China has dual deficit, right? The social deficit and the medical deficits. And for the government right, to fulfill the social responsibility, they need to generate income. The biggest asset sitting on their balance sheet is the state-owned enterprise. So there's definitely requirement from the shareholders to asking the corporate to pay more dividend. So on one hand, you have corporate willing to pay. On the other hand, you have shareholder asking for more. So. I think income will become a very important, credible uh, source of capital return for domestic mutual fund industry going forward. Jing, there's another way to focus on what you've just said, and it picks up on something that Helen mentioned earlier about ESG and what foreign asset managers can bring. You've been involved, I mean, you talked about starting and moving back to China in 2004. What have you seen as far as corporate governance and the trends in corporate governance in Chinese companies and the way that plays itself into the mutual fund industry? 
we have to separate E and S and the G when we're talking about how ESG work in China, right? For G, uh, G has been a long-term issue. So, so I mean, I've been investing in China since 2004. So every year, we either we fight with a corporate, we work with a corporate to improve the corporate governance, right? The, the, so the G uh, is not a new issue for China. It's not a new phenomenon. Jing, is that for both SOEs, state-owned enterprises, and private companies? For both. Corporate governance is a long-term, I, I wouldn't call it battle. It's a long-term exercise that shareholders uh, like us, act active shareholders, will engage with corporate to improve corporate governance. So, so this is what do we do, right? This is what, what do we do on a daily basis. On the E and S elements, E is a new government initiative. So basically, uh, President Xi has been pushing for the Green China for a couple of years already. And uh, there are a lot of policy that are coming out of the Green China initiatives. Some of them has been implemented and they're more in the pipeline. Uh, so I'm not so concerned about the E element because for China, as soon as the top leadership has set their mind on it, you will going to see people implement. So on this S, unfortunately, I have to say, uh, S is probably out of the three, is the area where I see least progress uh, because there's not widely recognized concept. How do we improve social responsibility as a shareholder? What When will be a period of time the Chinese company will start thinking about when I launch a new product, do I have the social responsibility in my mind? When I do marketing, do I think about the social feedback I get from the society? There are some cases people start to thinking about, especially with the help from social media, but I would say we still need to make progress on this. Does that not link with common prosperity though? There is definitely some overlap. Well, common prosperity, is a very interesting framework. There are a lot of people guessing around how China is going to implement the common prosperity without hurting the spirit of uh, entrepreneurship, right? So I think, Marty, you're right. Partially, common prosperity share some of the similar metrics with uh, the S element in ESG. But actually, what remains to be seen is how do we implement it? Yeah, and also just that whole dividend story as well. I mean, that's a, a clear indication of improving governance from a corporate perspective because of, you know, these corporations really looking at rewarding minority shareholders. And that income obviously is so important for retirement. Speaking of retirement, Fidelity, in partnership with Ant Fortune, recently released the results of its annual retirement readiness survey. I caught up with Lily Song, Fidelity's chief representative in Beijing, and an expert on China's pension market to find out how it went. What we're hearing here is the opening of a live-streamed event that occurred in November to launch the annual China Retirement Readiness Survey. This is now the fifth year we've done this report in collaboration with Alibaba's Ant Fortune, and the live stream received more than six million views. So, Lily, could you please tell us what was interesting in this year's survey? 
So you know, so I really can't believe that as we already come to the fifth year, the cooperation with End Financial for the survey. I think to come to the fifth year, we have seen a very positive progress. You know, to、so、come to the fifth year, I think over fifty percent of the population, especially young generations, has not aware of this kind of retirement preparation. But I think come to this year, the number has really go to the very positive direction. And also this year, actually, we have one finding that is people. Trying to make more awareness about this kind of decumulation side because this is we all we mentioned for the retirement is the lifelong journey, not only accumulation but also the decumulation. So we all see the very positive side in the past five years. We've seen a number of regulatory changes when it comes to the pension market over the past year. So Lily, what's been the key impact? Yeah, I think it's really for this kind of re- regulatory change influence a lot to the mass public. You know, starting from two thousand eighteen, we launched the this compiler scheme about third pillar. So this starting from the insurance products, and later just we see that it's more progress has been made, and also especially this year, this April. So the the formally launched this kind of third pillar pension system. And I think on the fifth November, we formally launched the individual retirement scheme. So all these kind of progress, I mean, for the regulators, government officials, they have really done a massive investor education to the mass public. So all these kind of things really change a lot and influence a lot. So third pillar pensions or, or private pensions, can you explain why they're so important for China? Third pillar pension is really very important to China because you know in previous time we don't have the third pillar we only have first pillar and second pillar. You know for first pillar we have already covered a huge population. Right now it's over one billion people around there, and also for the second pillar, it's、uh, compared to speaking a small group. Ah,、uh, at current stage it covers seventy two million people around here. So you can see that especially for the first pillar, a retirement replacement ratio is only around forty five percent. Which is compared to the global standard seventy percent, there's a great gap. So for the third pillar, it's really important just to fill the gap for the future preparation of the retirement life. Lily, thank you so much for joining. A really fascinating and ever evolving area. Yeah, thank you. All right, Catherine. A couple of things there. First of all. I think we need to go for six million listeners of the podcast. Like we just heard, six million views of of the survey. So I think that should definitely be a goal of ours. Second of all, we're seeing a real theme here, aren't we? And it's consistent with what we've heard in other podcasts, which is the way China's capital markets, the way the mutual fund industry, the way basically the financial markets develop, and how rapidly they're doing it. How China approaches it by learning from almost best of breed from global markets and bringing it to life domestically. Absolutely agree, Marty. We still have Jing with us, but I'd also like to introduce to the conversation Alvin Cheng, who is one of our fixed income portfolio managers based in Shanghai. Now our listeners can't see what's going on, but I can guarantee you that throughout the conversation we've already had, Alvin has been sitting there nodding in very much agreement. Welcome, Alvin. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Marty. So, the function of, of fixed income markets—you、um, know—how is this contributing both to the economy, the mutual fund industry, and also the markets themselves? Yeah, I think as Helen just mentioned, I mean, in the previous discussion, the China fixed income market is a huge market. It was twenty trillion U.S. dollar and a hundred forty trillion RMB. So, it's important for both the corporates and investors. I think China has been emphasizing、uh, 
changing its development from a fast pace to a high quality investment. So definitely we can see a lot of new industry booming in the manufacturing technology sectors. A lot of investment has to be come in in these sectors. So uh, uh, some of them can go to the equity market for sure, uh, but that's uh, not enough. So if you look at the current size of the fixed income market, it has 6,000 issuers. It's even more than the total number of list companies in China. So this is equally important channel um, for the company to, to find money uh, in, in the market. And then with a lot of mutual funds in this market, it actually helps the market to price um, the cost of capital more efficiently than the banks would do. So I think these will play a very important role. And also for investors, um, fixed income is also very important. As we mentioned, there is a huge number of investors in China. And a lot of them has a low risk appetite, as Jing mentioned about his parents, right? So um, I think we need a lot of investment vehicles to give them a quite um, safe um, investment returns. So that's where fixing kicks in. Alvin, we heard Lily uh, just talk about target date funds and, and the development of, of that aspect of the capital markets. What are you seeing in fixed income? What sort of developments are you seeing in, in products or, or opportunities there? I think um, a lot of new products has come in in the sphere of fixed income. So um, along the years, you can actually see that the risk-free rate of China fixed income market has actually been coming down in the past few years. So um, the return of pure fixed income sometimes cannot suffice people's need for yield. So there is a new type of product that's uh, getting more traction around the years, which is called fixed income plus. It is still more fixed income tilted, but it has some equity element in that. So typically, um, in the uh, construction of these kind of products, you will have 80% or more than 80% of fixed income instrument there, but you will have um, something around 20% of addition of equity products. So um, the risk uh, profile of these products are still more close to fixed income where you get some downside protection. But it gives you some upside um, when equity re- uh, equity market is really good. So, I mean, these are the products where um, a lot of like risk-averse investor will, will choose in the market. Um, so this also kind of add more, actually more depth and more width um, to the offering of fixing income product and offered by mutual fund managers onshore. So Alvin and Jing, do you sit in our Shanghai office and sort of debate where the better streams of income are going to come through? As a location for average investor in China is going to become more sophisticated, that's for sure. The stock market is uh, well recognized, so its average investor are very familiar with stock market, ultra stock market, and mutual fund industry. Uh, fixed income, they probably the knowledge is gaining through the wealth management product. But I think that uh, through, uh, I mean, as Alvin mentioned, the, mar- the market is going to be more institutionalized going forward. So the knowledge base is going to be growing. Yeah, I'm not trying to argue here, but I would say that um, both fixed income and an equity will play its role um, in, in asset allocation. Um, as probably um, Lily Song has mentioned, that there will be like a pension fund, a uh, pension product will be hugely important going forward in China. And the fixed incomes always have a role in this kind of product, um, given its kind of its nature of a more stable return. And also not only for onshore investors, I think for global investors, I mean, as they comes in um, to the capital market in China, a uh, fixed income is also important as a very kind of uh, illustrated diversifier uh, within domestic bond market. I'm um, taking 2022 for a year, uh, for example, where the U.S. rates are fastly hiking. Um, you can see the, the, the kind of actually some loss in the U.S. dollar denominated bond funds. But in China, 
Um, the return of fixed income market is still quite stable. I mean, so in this kind, in this circumstances of relatively volatile global market, sometimes the China will um, work as a safe haven for global global asset allocators. So, I think that both asset has their value, but then in different times, I and mean, they will have more merits. Yeah, yeah. Actually, basically, and and even if I wear the equity PM hat, I have to from. The foreign institution uh, investor perspective, I have to argue for Ellen because I mean, if you think about the fixed income market for equity, the QQ fees for investor, we know about this market. We've been investing in this market for at least maybe a couple of years, ten years. But for fixed income market, it's totally new, right? The game is from zero to one. And if you think about the correlation, last correlated, the currency RMB is still a very strong currency from the EM perspective. And the size of that market is very liquid, and terms of new issuance. So I think if I were a pension fund foreign investor sitting outside China, the fixed income market in China for me, from the asset allocation angle, is extremely attractive. So, so Jing, that's I, I like that point because it also ties back to what you mentioned earlier, which is around this barbell approach in the market where you've got savers on the one hand, and savers tend to go for fixed income, right? Um, and then you've got the active traders on the other hand in the development of that middle. So, Alvin, does that link to the institutionalization of the fixed income markets in China? And I wonder, with your conversations with some big pension funds, either onshore or offshore, are you seeing that sort of balanced approach develop even more? You talked about fixed income plus. Are there other areas even that you could think about? Yeah, so I think for institutional client,、um, fixed income market is kind of more institutionalized compared to equity. So I mean, institutional inst- clients are very big part of the market. So. For fixed income,、uh, for institutional、uh, clients, what we find is that they are trying to have more purer and purer requirements for product. So they will have like um, um, they will have a requirement for pure rate strategy. Um, they will have a requirement for pure credit strategy, and they will probably they will they will kind of come in for purer kind of a green strategy and ESG strategy that we were good at. So I think um the demand from institutional clients are getting more and more sophisticated and more specialized. So I think there's just all there's just also this opportunity. I mean for us. For fidelity, until comes in with more kind of a professional and specialized product, and for all these products, I think the, um, the, um, for institutional client,、um, their demand also they're getting more sophisticated. Um, so the risk metrics and then actually、um, the the risk control for this product has become even、uh, even more important. Actually, yeah, I mean, comparing to return perspective, um, due to this institutionalization. So, Alvin, you do think that we'll see a growing importance in terms of the development of credit risk assessment and the harmonisation, for example, with offshore credit rating methodologies. Yeah, so I think the fixed income market in China is huge, but there's still some area I mean to improve.、Um, I think the、uh, kind of the biggest improvement need to comes in in some area of the infrastructure.、Uh, for example,、um, credit rating is a very important part of the global inv-、uh, fixed income market. But for China, I mean there is、uh, credit rating. But then, due to some legacy reasons,、um, the credit rating is not very effective.、Um, majority of the onshore instruments are refined in three rating categories,、um, more than double A. So、um, there is not enough. I mean.、Uh, Kind of a、uh, spectrum. There's not a- enough kind of、uh, differentiation in terms of re- credit ratings in China. So 
Um, this is where I think there will need improvement. But we are seeing this improvement uh, as we see, I mean, firstly, a lot of uh, mutual funds like us, us are going to have their internal credit assessment, which will have more ratings. And for international rating agencies, um, players like SMP also are coming in China with their global perspective. So I think um, the improvement um, with this infrastructure we will definitely add more depths I mean, to the market. So maybe the last question to both of you, maybe Jing first, tying it back to the beginning, the domestic investor, what kind of influence do you think they will have on the equity markets? And then Alvin, if you could talk about it with respect to fixed income, it'd be great. Yeah, when we're talking about domestic investor, we have to differentiate the retail and institution. I think in terms of the share of influence, I would definitely say institution investor, both domestic, like pension insurance company and foreign asset manager like us will probably gain more influence in the market going forward. We mentioned earlier the barbell strategy, the barbell shape, the people sitting in the middle, the incremental growth of investor are coming to the middle part, which is going to be a key anchor for the market structure going forward. Yeah, on the fixed income side, I would say that, um, as I mentioned, that the risk-free rate in China is coming down. And a lot of people actually look, come into the fixed income market that will look for higher returns. And then we will need to see the part of a high yield uh, or, or kind of a corporate credit to grow in China to offer that kind of higher return. So in terms of infrastructure, what has been missing in the current market is disclosure and credit ratings. So with more investors looking into that area, I think that will potentially push the, the, the disclosure and the credit rating uh, to be more kind of compatible with the global standard. And this will definitely, I mean, help the fixed income market to not only be large, but also to be more mature um, in the future. You know, a couple of key takeaways from our discussion today. The first one, uh, Jig and Alvin and Marty, is that how many times do we have these investment debates and people are in agreement? So, Jing, I do love the way that you were very supportive or you could understand and, and highlight um, Alvin's view about the growing importance of fixed income. I think secondly, what's really, really key is that we always talk about the rise of the domestic Chinese consumer, but I think it goes hand in hand with the rise of the domestic investor. And the investment implications here are not only going to be huge, but also really exciting. Yeah, and, and we heard about it from Lily too with, with development of Pillar 3 and, and, and sort of the progression of the insurance market and institutional and the pension markets, didn't we? So um, you're right about that, that sort of consistency in views. Um, and I did like the way Jing, even with her equity hat on, said, uh, <laughs> gave, gave a hat tip to, uh, to Alvin and fixed income. One of the first times. <laughs> <laughs> so that brings us to the end of this episode. A big thank you to our guests, Jing Ning and Alvin Chang in Shanghai, and to our other contributors, Helen Huang, Senan Yuan, and Lily Song. And thank you for listening. If you want to read more of what's being covered today, please go to your local Fidelity website or fidelityinternational.com. The producers were Rory Fong and Neil Goff, with production support from Tommy Su and Keith Chun. The editor is Richard Edgar. Until next time, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.